This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Spring had come too early, and frost had blackened the first buds. Under the soil, the seeds and roots waited again, and starling waited too. Everything to its time, Mar always said. Mar would leave when it was time to leave. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Sarah Jane Butler about her debut novel, Starling. It's the story of a 19-year-old young woman who's been raised by a fiercely independent mother. Starling has never lived in a house or gone to school, but she knows how to survive the harshest storms, how to trap a rabbit or salt meat for winter, dig up edible roots and mushrooms, and find sources of safe water. Mar raised Starling as a traveler who lives off the land, taking what she needs and moving on, sometimes because they're not welcome. Mar and Starling have lived in community with like-minded friends that banded together. But over the years, Mara seems to have broken off relationships with everyone, and she and Starling have been alone. Then one day, Starling wakes up to discover that Mara has left her, too. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I am so looking forward to talking to you, Galit. So what was your impetus for writing this novel? It's kind of hard to remember because I actually started writing it uh, back in 2013. So that's quite a long time ago. Um, And I know that because I went away on a retreat for a week on my own in the remotest corner of Cornwall, which is the southwest of England by the sea in midwinter. And I sat there trying to work out how to tell a story about a pair of characters that I had in my head who were fidgeting about in my head and I didn't know what to do with them. And uh, they hadn't really taken form. I had an image of a young woman walking away from me in an empty landscape, so empty of people. I didn't know where she was coming from, but I knew she was escaping something and that she was fearful and angry and determined and that she was looking for home, but I didn't know anything else. And I kind of had a separate but connected idea of a mother and daughter 
uh, and that work turned into Ma and Starling. And the the mother was a really formidable, impressive and terrifying person. The kind of people we sometimes meet in real life, you know, they might be in politics or something. You think, whoa, they're amazing, committed, determined. But actually, I don't think I'd want to live with them. Um, and so they were just they were just there all that time ago. And I didn't quite know what to do with them. And it, it took me quite a long time, like two years before I really started writing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine people living off the land in most of England because because of the rain and harsh weather. We also see people living in camper vans in the States. Uh, I wonder, how do you envision the draw of living so close to the earth, just trying to survive? I think there's actually two separate things there, because in fact, if you live in a van, you're probably not living off the earth because you're going to be moving around. And by definition, if you're going to live off the earth, you probably actually have to stay put uh, in order to sow seeds, um, to you know raise livestock and so on. So it's, it, you can scavenge, you can go out and find stuff off the hedges, but it's pretty difficult to find enough to stay alive like that so the, the history is that in in this country probably much like in the US I think in the 70s there was a, a whole thread of people who decided they didn't really want to be part of mainstream life anymore um, it was like the hippie movement from the 60s kind of carried on into the 70s and a load of people left the towns and moved into converted trucks and buses and so on. And they, they often moved around in convoys. They would have festivals. So that's the start of Glastonbury here. Um, and that's kind of what turned into the scene that Ma, so Starling's mum, would have joined. Um, it was quite a radical scene. It was a really powerful community. They believed in living lightly on the land as far as possible. Um, it, was quite, it was quite a fluctuating scene. So people often had contacts, you know, their family and their friends who lived in towns and places and they would still have con- contact with them. Um, but they probably didn't actually often grow crops and so on. Some of those people became settled and formed communities. There are quite a lot of them in Wales um, where it's a bit wilder, a bit emptier. Um, I have to say that the, the climate in England is pretty good for growing food. Um, we, we've got a very harsh patch of weather at the moment with heavy snow but that's quite unusual for us i haven't seen snow here for a few years um got good soils got lots of rain which is good for growing things got a reasonable amount of sunshine so it's it's a pretty um nice climate actually for living on the land does get cold in winter but um yeah so i think people often just wanted to escape um a very constrained society and then a lot of people also left because they found they couldn't live um, in times of high unemployment and high rents and low wages. So successive waves of people went on the road. So it's not like the um, van life as an aspirational, lovely, shiny van um, that you might get now. Um, it's quite different. It's much more alternative. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Mar, Starling's mother. How would you describe her? I think, um, if I'm honest, I find Mar a really complicated character. And and it's interesting meeting readers now because uh, one person that I met recently who's quite a lot older than I am 
actually told me that she reminded him of his own mother, who plainly was quite a tricky person to like, but he loved her very dearly. Um, I think that uh, Ma is an ideologue, so she believes very firmly in um, the power of women, in um, pushing against artificial boundaries and rules, uh, and in trying to live lightly on the land. And she's kind of, I think she probably started off quite lightheartedly, but determinedly. She was a political animal back in the 80s and, you know, supported the miners' strikes and so on, which was a big thing here. And that's kind of a left-wing thing. Um, but she, I think she's kind of admirable, but the way her personality has taken those strong and admirable, admirable beliefs, I can't speak tonight, um, she's just become more and more dogged and stubborn in her beliefs and is quite unable to hear other people's stories and other people's ways of living lightly or not living lightly. She She's just become rigid and there's a kind of anger in her that comes from the difficult life she's led on the le- on the road and probably the difficult life she had before she went on the road. And that anger has kind of curdled in a way. And um, I think that it's, it's made it very, very difficult for her to keep going in the way she was going. Um, I mean, William James, the psychologist, so 19th, 20th century psychologist, talked about anger being an energy. It's a really powerful energy and it drives many passions. I think he said it's an ally of every other passion. Um, and it can destroy friendships, but it can also that the feeling of that anger can be deeply pleasurable. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about Ma. I think she'd be a very uncomfortable person to spend time with. Why doesn't Starling argue with her mother or rebel in some way when Ma decides to go off on their own to leave their community and go away? I, I suspect that Starling, she loves her mother. And um, I think it's probably been a slow drip so that when Starling was little, I think Ma was probably great fun and they were part of the community and and the change happened probably quite slowly. And it would have been difficult for Starling to turn her back on her mother because her mother represented all of the things that Starling had grown up to believe in. Um, And to leave Ma, she probably felt, I would guess, if so when Ma threw the others off the cat off the site basically i suspect that starling would have thought that if she went with m and luke and so on she would never see her mother again Mars that much you know that determined so that would be a difficult thing to do mar seems in one hand extremely self-absorbed but and I understand it's not in the book, but I'm just asking, just between you and me, do you think she might have left with the go- left Starling with the goal of forcing Starling to be independent? I'm kind of resisting reading more into Ma than I've put on the page. But my gut instinct is that Ma finally reached the end of her tether. She actually was, she was probably living in deep distress because she knew her life wasn't actually what she was hoping for. Um, I think because there is a clue in the argument she has with Al at the pub where Al points out that she doesn't live lightly on the land because she's driving a petrol-driven or diesel-driven van 
um, and isn't close to the land at all and that she's actually hypocritical. I think that probably went in quite deep. Um, I think people who go missing, which Mar essentially does from Starling's life, um, there's always a trigger, um, but it might also be a pattern in their lives. So I, I did a little bit of research into people who go missing. And there's a, there's a really interesting book by a man called Francisco Garcia, who's a, an English writer, whose father went missing, although he would probably be able to find him if he really looked hard. And he he wrote a book about looking for his father, um, um, but also talking to lots of people who'd gone missing or who had had someone go missing. And I think very rarely are they trying to send a message to someone else. It's about themselves because they they basically have reached a point where they can't go on. Um, it's often a pattern, so they've often gone missing before. And, of course, they're not missing from their own life. Um, Mar has not gone missing from Starling's life. She has walked into a new bit of her own life. Mm-hmm. Why are rituals so important to Starling? I think probably because her life has been incredibly unsettled. Um, the van has been a constant um, in terms of place, but she has never been able to stay in one location. And she's no, even if they did find a place which seemed like a good place to stay, the pattern of the community's life was that they would move on, they would follow work, follow festivals, go see friends. So ritual is a way of placing yourself, um, I think. And um, we all do it in different ways i've just been writing um myself about why i reread certain books at certain times of the year it's a ritual for me and i think it's it's a way of me saying here i am it's midwinter i'm going to reread a christmas carol and um gawain and the green knight because those are my winter i have reached this time of the year and i suspect that starling like she, her her little pot that she puts an item in from each place that she stops in. It's a way of her saying to herself, I'm here, I belong here, I have part of this place with me, um, and I'm safe when I have this pot. She must feel very unsafe most of the time. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about her relationship with Luke? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much a sibling relationship. I'm sure that there have been times, because he's older than she is, Um and there might well have been times when she was in her teens that she kind of fancied him as a romantic thing, but I don't think that would ever have gone anywhere because they have been brought up pretty much as siblings. He was the first to hold her apart from her own mother um, and has always looked out for her. And his family has always seen her as part of their family. So, yeah, he's always been a solid person for her. So when we watch their relationship unfold um, when Stalin goes to find him, it's really tricky for her when she, she, she sees that he's moved on and he's got another life and she's not sure that he still has space for her. Um, and she, and I think that's part of the reason for her really pretty hideous behavior <laughs> um, towards Luke and his partner Kit, because she, she doesn't feel like she's got room there anymore. It was quite clear to her when, Luke was there with his mum, M, and his brothers. That you know, she was part of that scene. She, you know, bundled into their van with them and went travelling. But how does she fit in with Luke now? She doesn't really know. But he, yeah, I think as readers, I'm hoping that we can tell that Luke has Starling's back. 
so there's a there's a conflict between what Starling thinks and what we think. I think, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Starling reads about levelers at the library. Can you say more about that? Wow, gosh, it's quite a while since I did my research. Um, I'm trying to think when the levelers were. I might. I'm bit vague on this because I have an absolute sieve of a memory but essentially they were an uprising of people uh, in England who were objecting to the fact that they were pretty much tied to the landers um, you know tied laborers they didn't really have any rights they didn't have rights to land they weren't allowed to travel around from place to place and they rose up demanding that we have a right to own this land and farm this land ah. but it didn't um, last <laughs> Right. Place is important to Starling, but she also needs to be alone in nature. So what's the draw of Wincombe to someone like Starling who only knows traveling? And also, is Wincombe based on a a real place? It's not based on a real place, at least it is, but it's based on a number of real places. And it would be impossible to tell where one begins and the next starts because... Like there's an alleyway down to the river, which definitely belongs in a town that I know quite well. The pattern of the town belongs to a whole other town. Um, you know, it, it's it's an amalgam. The setting is pretty much this part of the world where I live. So um, the Kent-Sussex border in the southeast of England. Um, and that's because it's a landscape that I know extremely well. I've lived here all my life pretty much. So, And I spend a lot of time out in it walking around poking in ditches and, you know, prodding hedges to see what's in them and lying in the fields and watching things go by. Um, so that's where that comes from. I don't think I don't think Starling would have chosen to go to Wincombe uh, had it not been for the fact that she was completely alone um, in the van. And I think she realised she couldn't stay there on her own because um, she had no means of supporting herself. And she's very vulnerable. In that van, the moment that uh, anyone came and discovered her, she was liable to be thrown off the the land and her van destroyed or at worst, but definitely impounded. So she would be homeless. So she needed to go and find a new home. Um, And the thing about England, as opposed to the US, is we have a really small country and every single patch of it is owned. There is no place here that isn't owned by someone. We have no right to stop and, say, put up a tent uh, and live without being disturbed and thrown off it. So the only place you actually can go is a town or a village, but basically a town because, you know, I live in a village. that There's nowhere to hide here. Everybody would notice you. So but towns, are, towns land, are anonymous. We, we what, do have public what about, land. Oh, OK. Yeah, we do have public land, but it still has rules. So you're not allowed to... There's a current dispute at the moment in England that the only place in the whole of England, so that's not Scotland, Wales or Ireland, the whole of England that you're allowed to camp wild legally is Dartmoor, which is one moorland in the southwest. Everywhere else it's illegal. And most places, you know, if I walk 12 miles back to my village from a village just due west of here, I would walk through three private estates owned by manor houses, you know, with earls and people in them. It's still very ancient. The pattern of land ownership here is incredibly inequitable. 
so that's that's the context for Starling. And so she doesn't have a place to belong. If she doesn't have the van and the van's not safe, she doesn't have a place to belong. And you can't just go and carve out. You can't go and find a handy hill with a wood in it that you can hide in because someone will find you. Yeah, there isn't anywhere that people don't go and walk in here, really. Hmm. Can you say more about Starling and Mars artistry? Yeah, I'm not really sure where it came from. I'm not an artist. I do draw and paint, but only very much in private. Um, I'm usually just trying to, I'm just trying to relax. Or I drew sketches of Starling and Mar when I started work, but I'm not an artist. Uh, I think uh, I wanted them to have a way of expressing their love of nature, which they do through their art. But also I was thinking about how Mar was going to support herself because it need, it was important that she had a source of income uh, and it needed to be something skillful and special I thought for for Mar and so somehow it, I knew that she decorated her van because there are some there were at least some amazing decorated vans uh, and I thought well I'm, I reckon Mar drives one of those and it, I decided that she would have decorated it and then I have no idea where the idea for her becoming a sign painter came from but it just kind of dropped into my mind and I went yes that's what she does because um, they're a kind of way of communicating um, and bridging the gap between different groups of people I think it art so um, and and for Starling it's a way of expressing herself it's what she does when she doesn't know what else to do she so yeah I'm much like writing I mean <laughs> if you don't know what else to do write it down so there we go you write uh, quote, with her supplies from Bramhill, she, meaning Starling, ate like a queen. So for us Americans, it's just a turn of speech. But as a Brit, what does that say about how the queen eats? Wow, I don't think the queen would have much enjoyed living off dried apples and, um, you know, nuts and fruits and breads and things. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's probably the same expression. It, it, our queen, I don't think probably would have much, maybe she'd have loved Maybe she'd have loved walking across country with her pockets full of fruit. She might have loved it, but I don't know. Here it is just a phrase saying you eat really well. Um, you know, you're not you're not stinting. Um, she's not starving, so it's not it's, it's a contrast to the beginning where she's got pretty much nothing to eat and she's getting really hungry. She's just living off a few oats and some dried breads. Um, now she's got whatever she really wants, and she's got some cash in her pocket. So. <laughs> I'd like to know if there's going to be a follow-up where Starling is a middle-aged woman with a teenage daughter who threatens to run off and wow. be a traveler. <laughs> that would be a lovely irony, wouldn't it? It's funny how many people have asked me to write a follow-up, and I have no plans to do so, certainly at the moment. I'm never going to say never, but right now, no, I'm leaving Starling to get on with her life. Okay. And, and, yeah, but then... a happy middle age. Yeah. <laughs> but then, Sarah, what are you working on next? I have two things. I'm, well, one thing I'm working on, one I'm letting simmer. So I, the thing I'm letting simmer is the next novel. And I'm not going to say what it's about, uh, except that I have a char- two characters uh, and a location and an underlying event. And I'm letting that simmer. I am going to start writing that, I hope, in the summer next year. So I, what I learned from writing Starling is give yourself lots of time to allow the plot and the characters and the main themes to take shape before you start writing. Because I wrote, 
I wrote Starling so many times before I worked out what I was doing. Um, but the other book I'm writing is creative nonfiction. So I'm writing about the River Medway, which is the, an 80-mile river that runs more or less from where I live um, out to the Thames. Uh, and I've been connected to that river all my life. And so I'm kind of exploring how we can be connected to a natural being like a river. Uh, and it starts off with me traveling the river on my own, which I actually did. So I did go the 80 miles out to the sea. And uh, partway along, I started meeting lots of people like lock keepers and boat owners and um, people that ran nature trips and conservationists and so on. So uh, it's going to be a mix of voices. And so that I'm partway through. It sounds intriguing. Oh. I wish you the best of luck on, on that one and on um, getting um, this book, getting Starling into lots of readers' hands. And it was a pleasure talking to you today, Sarah. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Gilly. I have really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Sarah Jane Butler about her debut novel, Starling. Hope you have a good book to cuddle up with tonight and every night. Happy reading. <laughs>